This is a first time or first time in a long time. We started a series a few weeks back on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and turn there, you can go ahead and, and do that. Uh, if you didn't bring it with you this morning, I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen and so it'll be easy for you to follow along. But a few weeks back we, we took a look at the life of Christ uh, all the way in eternity past, and then we kind of jumped ahead into the incarnation and saw uh, how he came in a broken genealogy, and then even last week we even saw what preteen Jesus uh, had to look like. That was kind of a fun little picture for us, but this morning we're going to jump, uh, jump ahead by about 18 years uh, from the time he is 12 to about the time that he's 30 and where he's about to begin his earthly ministry, and the passage we're going to look at today is easily going to be one of the most relevant passages in Scripture because it's all about temptation and how the enemy plans to attack. And so a few weeks back when we were taking a look at the, um, at the, um, the armor of God and, and in First Corinthians and some different passages around there, we, I, I told you about the first time that, uh, that I had a chance to go play some paintball, and uh, it didn't go too well for me. I remember this story. It was like I was a little kid. It was elementary time, and, and uh, I didn't know what I was get, getting into. Everybody else came decked out full, full camouflage and body armor and, and paint grenades and Uzis and the whole thing. And I showed up in, like, little soccer shorts and a white T-shirt and just got obliterated that day, like, all day long. And I talked with you guys about that a few weeks back. But what I didn't share with you is, like, after those first few games, I started to find a little bit of a rhythm and started to figure out, like, how the whole thing worked and, and got a little bit better plan of action. And so... Um, one of these games was kind of pretty much all of them were, were this kind of a capture the flag type of a game. We weren't playing in this big open field like you go to today. I mean, it was, uh, mount, it was kind of rolling hills and woods, giant fields and things like that. And so um, I'm with my team and I'm going down the side of the, of the field and I notice my cousin up ahead. He's on the opposite team and he's, the dude is hiding in bushes. He's one of the only people that's playing that day. We've got friends and cousins and family and tons of other people. It's a huge game going on. And he's one of the only guys out there that's younger than me. And so needless to say, the dude, he was, he was actually obliterate, obliterated even worse than I was, right? Like I was just covered. I was swollen. I had like welts all over my body from the first few games. And he had it even worse. And so I'm coming along and I find the guy hiding in bushes and thorns. And he's just like, he's just kind of hiding out, not even really playing the game. And so I felt a little bit of mercy and compassion to him. And I'm going, okay, he, he's had it even worse than I have. I'm not going to just light him up. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to mess with him. and I'm going to scare the crud out of him. And so I come up behind him and and instead of just lighting him up and just shooting him right there in the bush, I jump on him and I steal his gun and I hold the gun to him. I'm like, freeze, I'm going to kill you, all, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the kid just starts freaking out. This is his first time too. And he's just like, don't shoot me, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. And he's just kind of begging for his life. And I'm going all Jack Bauer 24 on him and all this kind of stuff. And, and so we make, a little bit, we make a little deal together. And I was like, okay, buddy. I was like, I won't shoot you, but here's what you got to do. You got to tell me where your, the rest of your team is and what your plan of attack is. What's your whole strategy in this whole game? And so that's exactly what happened. I didn't shoot him, and he told me all of their plans. He told me where all the people on his team were hiding, and he just sold out his entire team, right? And so I go back to the other guys, and I'm like, all right, here's what's happening. Here's where they're all located. We knew it. We had the map of the territory. We knew exactly how the whole thing was going to go on. And so we came around, and we shot up like all the rest of the guys, and, and pretty much that's all that it took to win the game. And I think we get the point of this, right? Like the point is like when you know the enemy's plan, it's a whole lot easier to win the war. 
right? Like, like you know this. When you know how the enemy plans to attack and you know the different angles and you know how they're going to flank you and you know how the enemy is going to come in, it's a whole lot easier to win the war. And it's exactly what we're going to see essentially in this passage in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. And so, again, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn there. Uh, Matthew chapter 4. We're going to pick it up here together in verse 1. Here's how Matthew kicks it off. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, I love this part, he was hungry. Right? Kind of one of the most obvious verses in all of the Scripture. You're fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, you're going to be pretty hungry, right? Uh, two things I want to kind of notice here at the very beginning before we really jump into the meat of the temptation here. Uh, but first and foremost, it starts off and we find out that Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted. So the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, but who did the actual tempting? It was the enemy, right? It was Satan was the one that was actually doing the real tempting. The Holy Spirit led him. The Holy Spirit allowed the testing to continue. It was the enemy. It was Satan, the accuser, who's doing the actual temptation. James 1.13 is very clear about this. He says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm actually being tempted by God. In other words, when you're in the middle of financial scrutiny or tension at home or whatever's going on at work, you don't sit there and say, okay, I'm being tempted by God. Uh, subtle difference right here. He's allowing this to take place for your testing, for the strengthening of your faith, but it's actually the accuser, the enemy, who's doing the tempting. Satan wants to lead you away from the Father. The Father wants to strengthen your faith, and it's a major difference taking place there. Uh, second thing I want us to notice is the timing of this whole temptation. Uh, Matthew begins and he says, then Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. What took place in chapter 3? What's the then referring to? The baptism, right? It's this beautiful scene where, where um, it's this beautiful scene where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together. It's the inauguration, essentially, of Christ's adult ministry here on earth. It's his coming out party as the Savior. And so uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are together in the Jordan River. John the Baptist is baptizing people. Jesus comes and says, I need you to baptize me. He goes in there, and he's getting baptized by John the Baptist. The heavens open up. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and there's a voice from heaven from the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately from there, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness, and for 40 days and for 40 nights, uh, he is fasting and he is praying and experiencing incredible intimacy with the Father. And what I want you to see is in the middle of that place, that's when the enemy decides to attack. In the highest of highs, right, when you're on the mountaintop experience, it's when things are going fantastic, that's when the enemy decides to attack. I mean, one moment, it's a spiritual high of being affirmed by the Father and the Holy Spirit and being sent out by them to go and to do the work that Jesus came to do. And the next thing you know, he's in the middle of the wilderness in a place called Jeshimon, which literally means the devastation. It's a desert, and he's being tempted by El Diablo himself. Right, that's what's taking place here. I mean, that's how the enemy chooses to work. I think it was Andy Stanley who put it like this. He said, seasons of revelation are often followed by seasons of temptation. Right? You may want to write that down. Like, seasons of revelation are often followed by seasons of temptation. And I think we've probably seen this and experienced this ourselves, right? I mean, if anybody, anybody else uh, ever go to camp as you were a kid and and you kind of went away and you had this encounter with God and you came and you made all these promises. I, like, I'm going to walk faithfully with you forever. And I'm never going to sin again. And I'm yours and all these different kinds of things. And then you get back to school on Monday and you realize, hey, okay, it's not quite that easy. Or anybody kind of had the youth group experience. You were in high school and when you were in high school, you were flourishing in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As long as you had a community of people around you to keep you accountable and to keep you encouraged and moving strong. And then you went off to college and you realized... Okay, it's a whole other story here. 
I mean, that's what the enemy does, church. It's why Sundays are so fantastic and Monday's a completely different story. But the reason I'm saying that is because, church, like some of us are there right now. Like some of us are there right now. You're on that Sunday high. You're on that mountaintop experience, and you're walking on cloud nine right now. And God is doing this incredible work in your life, and you're flourishing in all things pertaining to him. Maybe for some of you, it started back at Revive Texas. Right, This time when our entire community, uh, entire church body was engaged in the city and we were sharing our faith and praying for other people and we were seeing God do in incredible ways. And maybe during that time, God gave you this, this, this hunger and this taste to share the gospel and he gave you this picture for how he may want to use you uh, in his purposes throughout the world. Or maybe it's not that, but maybe it's re-engage. And God's been doing a work in your life when you finally decided to get real serious about what's taking place at home and in your marriage and in your own personal life. And like you're discovering things about him that you've never tasted before. You're tasting and seeing that he alone is actually good. And you're flourishing in your relationship with the Lord and all these different things. And what I want you to see is that you're primed for the temptation of Satan. That's when he comes, when he comes, he, he, he w- loves those mountaintop experiences. When, when things are going fantastic, right around the corner, Satan comes. Your season of revelation will likely be followed by a season of temptation. And the good news about what we're going to see here is that like Satan can come, the enemy can come and he can tempt, but he cannot make you sin. He's limited in his power. Like this, the, the enemy can come and, and dangle the fruit, he cannot make you eat. There's always going to be a way out. And it's exactly what Jesus is going to show us right here. So verse 3 comes along, and he's fresh out of the water, and 40 days and nights of fasting and intimacy with the Father. Here comes the tempter, and the tempter came to him and said this, If you really are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first temptation that we're going to see here is a really, really subtle form of idolatry. Uh, whereby we trust in the provision of God rather than the God who provides. It's subtle right here, right? It's a really, really subtle shift that he's after here. All he says is, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. I know that you can do it. I know that you're hungry. All you got to do is feed yourself. Right, church, let me ask you this. Like, is there anything wrong with bread? I mean, assuming you're not gluten-free or celiac or you know, an Atkins diet or something like that, right? Like, is there, like, there's nothing wrong with bread, right? In fact, I'm pretty convinced there's going to be a golden chicken in heaven, and you're going to be able to eat those rolls all day long and not get fat or sick or anything like that. Maybe Sunny Brian's or Spring Creek rolls, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, that bread is fantastic. Like, there's nothing inherently wrong about bread, except for the fact that Jesus was specifically led by the Holy Spirit into this wilderness for 40 days and nights of fasting and prayer so that he can practice his dependence upon the Father, right? That's what fasting is. Like, fasting is a prolonged denial of food that physically expresses a spiritual hunger inside, and it comes out uh, as, as total and complete trust in the provision of God for everything. That's what's going on. Church, don't miss this, right? Like, the enemy's first attempt had nothing to do with anything blatantly immoral. As Tim Keller says, he says, Satan did not first come with booze or with women, right? He came with bread. Like, don't miss that subtlety right there. He didn't come with booze or breast. All he wanted was something to take something that was good like bread or marriage or children or your singleness or success 
or sex or money or your appearances and subtly shift that thing just a notch above the Lord. It's why Paul's going to say, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's going to say, don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose at the play. Church, that's all that it is, right? That's all that idolatry is. It is it's too much food. It's too much entertainment. It's, it's taking a good thing and elevating it subtly above where God is in your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's all that it is. It is a subtle shift. It's anything that you functionally love or trust in more than you do God. I'll never forget a conversation I had with an Indian pastor a number of years ago. He was in from Bangladesh, and uh, he was visiting Dallas as uh, one of his first times in the States. And so we were talking, and I'd visited Bangladesh, and so we had a good conversation about it. And I was asking him how he was enjoying Dallas. And he's saying, you know, I love Dallas. Dallas is fantastic. It's great to see what God's doing around here. i got to be honest with you, though. I'm a little surprised at how much idolatry there is here. And I was like, wait a second, what? You're coming, to, you think that there's idolatry here, bro? I was like, bro, I've been to Bangladesh. Like, I came out of my hotel room one day, and there's a giant termite hill on the street outside of our hotel, and there's people over there bowing down at a termite hill and literally worshiping this shrine that was made by termites, right? I mean, I, I've been in your territory. I've seen the temples. I've seen the shrines. I've seen the actual physical idols before. And so he goes on and he explains to me and he's about how the whole thing of idolatry works. And he says, when people bow to idols, all that they're doing is going before God in order to get the thing that they really want and love the most. So some people will go to this God over here for money. And some people will go to this God over here for success. And some people will go to this God over here for protection and safety. And some people will go to this God over here for health. And he says, uh, but essentially people are not bowing because they love that God. They are bowing in order to get the things that they really love the most. And what he said was, we're doing the exact same thing in America. The difference is that we actually have the provision, the resources, and the money in order to get the things that we love the most. So we never have to bow. Right? Like, by the way, church, like Tim Keller says the exact same thing in, in Counterfeit Gods. He says, the human heart takes good things, like, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as a center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we're able to attain those things. Church, that's what idolatry is, right? It is good things like bread or sports or entertainment or food or love or self or things or relationships or people that subtly over time become little g gods in our heart. And so Satan comes very subtly. He's tempting first and foremost with bread, but Jesus fires back with Deuteronomy. And I love the way that he fights back here. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. It is written, man shall not live by, the, by bread alone, but by the very word of God. Now, when Jesus says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God, what's he talking about with the word of God there? Like, is he talking about the Bible so much as, as, as we understand it today? I love his response here because what he's doing is he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's this beautiful scene where Moses is, is speaking to the Israelite people. He, it, spoiler alert, he's talking about the provision of God. He's not talking about the Bible because he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's time before the Bible comes into existence. Now, 
is it actually true that we can trust the word of God? Of course it is. But here's what he's saying in Deuteronomy 8. Moses is speaking to the Israelites. He's just, they've just been delivered from the bondage of slavery at the hand of the Egyptians. Uh, he's given them the law. They've survived the wilderness. He's given them the law. They're in the middle of it right there. And so here's what he says in chapter 8, verse 2. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, he's talking about the provision that comes from the mouth of God's word. He's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about the fact that God speaks and things come into existence. God speaks and manna falls from heaven. God speaks and he kept the people safe. Verse 4, your clothes they did not wear out. And your feet didn't swell during those 40 years. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive oil and honey. I mean, a a really good flourishing land. And he says, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he's given to you. Remember that he's the one that provides He says in verse 15, he led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He's the one that kept you safe during that time. He brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known to humble and test you so that in the end it may go well with you. You may say to yourself, church, my power and my strength the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Church, is anyone around here in North Dallas tempted to say, hey, all these great things that are happening around me, this is me? Like anyone else love uh, the, the American dream as much as I do? The idea that we can work really, really hard and accomplish great things and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and all these different kinds of things. Like I love success. Church, all Satan is after is a subtle shift in our affections and the way that we think and the things that we believe that elevates ourself or different things around us just a notch above where God is in our affections. That's all that he's after here. It is the idol of self-sufficiency that he's talking about right here. And so Moses says, don't forget that it's the Lord who provides. In in the middle of all these different things, these brooks and these streams, all these different things, don't forget it is the Lord who provides. Don't take matters into your hands just because you have to wait a little longer than you wanted to wait. Don't stop praying and praising him for all things just because he lets you be a part of his plan of provision for you. It's the Lord who provides the ability to produce wealth, he says in verse 18, meaning he's the one who gives you your job, who provides homes and protection and joy and satisfaction like nothing else. Can. And so Satan comes, and the very first temptation is a subtle one. Like all he wants to do is, is, is pre- present with you something that's good and beautiful that's a part of your normal life and, and present it in such a way that it subtly takes over the place that you once had God in. He keeps going. He starts to ramp it up a little bit more in verse 5, and it says this. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And then he said, if you are the son of God, there it is again. Same thing in verse 3, right? We're seeing a little repetition here. If you really are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you really are the Son of God, then jump. That's all you've got to do. If you really are the Son of God, prove it. Test who you are. Show me who you really are. You guys remember the movie Anchorman? I was thinking about this past week. I love this. Check this out. You guys remember this scene? I'm Ron Burgundy. If you haven't seen it, okay, he reads everything on the teleprompter. Somebody puts a little question mark at the end of the statement instead of saying, signing off and saying, I'm Ron Burgundy. I'm Ron, Bur- I'm Ron Burgundy. 
Like it's exactly, that's exactly the temptation that we're seeing here, right? He loves to come and put a question mark where God has put a period, right? Like that's what he's doing. Like the, the enemy loves to come and put a question mark where God has put a period. I mean, the father has just said of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's who you are, period. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he knows it. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt who he is, his relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He knows exactly where he stands in the Trinity. He knows everything that's going on. Uh, and that's what the Father said. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, period. No confusion about it. And Satan comes along and he adds a question mark to his identity where God has put a period. Church, can anyone think of any examples going on today where, God, where the enemy is doing the exact same thing? I mean, he's killing us with questions of identity today. I mean, a few years back, uh, I think it's sometime in 2016, there's a video that came out, went viral. I showed a, a clip of it in the church. Uh, do you guys remember this one? It was about the guy talking about, uh, what would you say if I was a six foot five inch Asian woman? Five foot nine inch white guy saying that, right? You remember this video? I'm going to show this clip here in just a few minutes. I want you to watch this. If you've seen it before, I want you to pay attention again to the messages. Like, why do you think people are so quick to redefine things that used to have a period behind that statement? Pay attention to some of these, these, these reasonings and stuff and see if you can kind of figure out some of the motivations that are going on behind the scenes. Evelyn, if you want to go ahead and put it up. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think. Uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether you're sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean... I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like 
there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six if you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. So you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but i say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a 5'9 white guy that he's not a 6'5 Chinese woman. But clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? Anyone remember that from a couple years ago? It's, it wasn't limited to a couple years ago, was it? I mean, he's literally killing us by simply putting a question mark where there once used to be a period. A little while ago, uh, Facebook, they took it down most recently, but there's 50, over 50-plus 50 different gender options on Facebook alone. Now there's a, a, a custom box, so they don't want to be limited to just 50-plus, so you can literally write in your own description of like how, you, how you feel that you are. And I get the motivation. Did you guys pay attention to the motivations that were there? And I hope that, church, I hope that we, we get this, that we're a community of people around here that are discerning to the messages around you, that you understand, okay, that we're able to kind of, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that we're willing to embrace whatever mess there may be and be willing to, to discern what's really going on behind the scenes. Like, what did you figure out? Like, what's the motivation? Like, that there's people that you know and that you love who are dealing with a genuine battle inside and you honestly want them to feel loved and accepted, right? That's a fantastic motivation. But let me ask you something. Like, are you able to love people that you fundamentally disagree with? Of course you are. Of course you are. It's the foundation of the gospel, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in the middle of that place. While you and I were still sinners, opposed to the holiness of God, opposed to his righteousness, in rebellion, in ignorance, lost and dead in our sins. In the middle of that place, Christ came and he died for us. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. It's central to the gospel. While we were in opposition to who he was, Christ came and he loved us in the middle of that place. It's why Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should love your, that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, you should love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Church, it is central to the heart of the gospel. When we were opposed to the things of God, God came and was still able to love you in the middle of that place anyway. Agreement has never been a prerequisite for love. Another person came in this passage and said, it's not my place to say that you're wrong. 
right? Uh, you heard this over and over again. It's not my place to say that you're wrong. It's this value of individualism, this, this deep-seated conviction and culture that, 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 um, that, that myself, the highest source of authority and truth in the world today is myself and how I view those things. And of course, the problem with that is if you're a believer, you believe that there's a God who spoke and literally, literally created all that is. And you believe that while you were lost and dead in your sins, Christ in his infinite, God in his infinite love sent Jesus to come and do for you what you could not do for yourself and die upon a cross and three days later walk out of the tomb alive so that you may have life in him if you give your faith to him. You, you come to, to salvation in him. Like I, That's literally what we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, we're not our own source of authority. Every single day, the posture of a believer is that we bow before him. And as much as there's a contradiction in my life and when, when I find out about the word of God, like I bow before him in all different kinds of things. Another guy came and said, he said, as long as you are not hindering society and causing harm to other people, be who you want to be. In other words, for him, the, the, the entire thing is just a personal thing. It doesn't matter. It's harmless to other people, Right? Church, let me ask you this question. Is it really a personal matter that has no impact whatsoever on anyone else? Or has it literally impacted everyone else and completely redefined how we think about identity and gender today? Like, is it really harmless for an entire generation of kids to be questioning who they are long before they can even tie their own shoes? I mean, look what the enemy says here. Don't be deceived. Here's what he says. If you're really the son of God, I know that the Father's already put a period on that statement there before. I, I know that you know who you are, but if you really are the Son of God, then throw yourself down. In other words, he wants you dead. Just throw yourself off this mount. Like, if you really are these things, then throw yourself down. Church, he wants you dead. That's what he's saying. I swear that it's harmless. Just throw yourself off this mountain and kill yourself. And the problem is that our kids today are listening. Right, like the suicide rate among millennials and Gen Z are twice the rate of any other generation before them. 33% have been diagnosed with clinical depression. 20% of our teenage girls, 15% of our teenage boys are involved in some sort of self-harm or cutting. Church, it's not harmless. It's not harmless, is it? And granted, there's a lot more behind those stats than one particular thing, but he's literally killing us and it's been that way since the beginning. Church, his tactics don't change. Back in the garden when sin and death were entered, entered into the picture, back to Genesis chapter 3, what was the first thing that he said to Eve? I mean, the first thing that he said was, come on, Eve, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Very first thing, when sin and death enters in, did God really say that, Eve? God spoke and put a period at the end of the statement. And Satan comes around and he says, did he really say that? Are you hearing it right? Surely it's not relevant anymore. That's a 2,000-year-old book. I mean, surely it doesn't mean anything. Did God really say those things, church? His, ch his strategies just don't change. He's still doing the exact same thing. Come on, Jesus. If you're really the son of God, then throw yourself down. Prove it. Test him. I swear to you, it's harmless. He's going to command his angels concerning you, and they're going to lift you up in their hands so you're not even going to strike your foot against a stone. Come on, Billy. You really, did God really say that you're beloved? I mean, did God really say that you're created in his image? I mean, just look around you, bro. You're in a desert right now. There's no one around you. You're hungry. You're starving. It doesn't look like God loves you. Look at your circumstances. Look at your bank account. Look at the turmoil in your family. Look at what's happening all around you because it does not look like God loves you. It does not look like he sees you. Did God really say that every man, woman, and child was created in his image and given inherent dignity and value? 
I mean, did God really say that as many as have received unto them, he's given a right to be called a child of God? Did God really say that you have been adopted into his family and you're, you're seen and loved by the almighty king of all creation? Did he really say that he's given you purpose because you were created in his image and you were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which he's prepared in advance for you to walk in? Did God really say that you're an essential member of Christ's body and that you're essential for the flourishing of a local body of believers around you? Did did God really, really say that there's nothing about you that's an accident because he knew you when you were in your mother's womb and you were fearfully and wonderfully made by him? Did God really say that he saw you before the foundations of the world? Did God really say that he loved you so much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and do for you what you could not do for yourself? Church, he's killing us by putting a question mark where God's put a period. And it's not just the identity issues, issues either. Like, it's all over the place, right? It's like, did God really say that my lust is the same thing as adultery? Did he really say that my porn problem is a ginormous problem? Like, did he really say that I need to love my neighbor and my enemy as myself? Did he really say that there's a problem with my gluttony or my greed or envy or anger or materialism or pride? I mean, did he really say that, that I need to give sacrificially to a local body of believers for the good and glory of his name? Did he really say that I need to be a contributing member of a local church because you already are a member of his body? I mean, did he really say that I need to die to myself in order to follow him? I mean, did he really say that to the extent that we've cared for the lowest in society, we've done it unto him? Did he really say that that this is a baby and not just a clump of cells? Church, I'm telling you, he is killing us today. Simply by this one little tactic, here's a question mark, where God's put a period before. And if we do not know what God has said is true, we're going to jump when he tells us to jump. Satan comes and his tactics are the same. He tries to twist the word of God in the garden and he tries to twist the word of God here. And so Jesus calls him out and he just says, again, it's written. Here's what's actually true. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words... Church, you don't have to question what he's already said is true. Satan tries again one more time in verse 8, and really what we're seeing here is the final culmination and the end goal of what he's trying to get Jesus to do. Here's what he says. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this I'll give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Church, what's he appealing to there? Vanity and desire. Man, that's beautiful. That is everything my soul is long for. And Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. The church, the third strategy of the enemy is very, very simple. It's just compromise. It's just compromise. It's pursuing a really, really good thing the wrong way. I mean, what, what, what Satan comes to Jesus with is exactly what Jesus came for. Jesus came to establish his kingdom. Jesus came to establish his rule, and it's exactly what, what the enemy's saying. He's saying, I'm going to get out of the way. The only thing you got to do is bow and worship me. All you got to do is sell your soul and compromise your convictions and deny your values and walk away from having a strong witness, and you can have everything that your heart's always wanted. Look at how beautiful that it is. Look at all these things. Look at that home. Look at that lake. Look at that view. You can have it all. 
if you'll just bow. Church, have you ever heard the enemy's voice in your head when he's, when he's calling you to compromise? I mean, it's subtle and it's simple, right? All he's saying is, go ahead, go after that thing. Here's a shortcut because you deserve it. It's the voice in your head that says you deserve to feel loved and you haven't been given a spouse yet. God's spiting you and you, you haven't found a spouse yet or the, the spouse that you do have at home, they're not giving it to you in the way that you want it. And so you are more than entitled to go and find it somewhere else because after all, God just wants you to be happy, right? It's his whole goal is just that you're gonna be happy, whatever that fleeting happiness is and how you define it. I mean, it's that voice that says you deserve to be promoted. You've worked harder than anyone else in the company and everyone else is cheating to get ahead. And therefore it's not really cheating if everybody else is doing the exact same thing. Just compromise. Like you deserve it. You've worked hard. You're supposed to provide for your family. And so whatever it takes, the end justifies the means, right? It's the voice that says you've earned a little respect from your family and the employees around you, and you deserve a little bit more respect. They're not really giving it to you. And so it's okay to put them in their place. It's the voices from your spouse who tells you that you're working too hard and that your kids are suffering and they, they need your attention at home, but you're not having it because the work that you're doing gives you all the validation and praise that your soul really craves. It's the late night browsing sessions. It's the locker room talk. It's the gossip. It's the innocent flirtation that you always thought was harmless, but deep down inside, like you know that it was never, ever, ever harmless. Church, compromise is never harmless. Compromise is never, ever, ever, ever harmless. It's Hebrews 3, which we talk about over and over again all the time. There's a hardening effect to your sin, and it brings you to the point where you're numb to the things of God. On top of that, it kills the credibility of your witness. Church, the enemy doesn't need you dead if he's made you completely incompetent for the task that God's called you to be to, to do. Like the enemy does not need you dead if you're completely incompetent to the task that he's called you to do. That's why a chapter later, Jesus is gonna say, Matthew 5, 13, he's gonna say, remember church, like you're the salt of the earth. Like that's who you are, that's, that's period. Church, don't forget this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You're the light of the world. If you didn't get that one, like, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl to hide it. They put it on a stand so that it can give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, church, let your light shine before other people. Why? That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Church, that's what's at stake. It's an uncompromising testimony. It's a faithful life that bears witness to a faithful God who is more satisfying than anything the world can provide. It's everything. It's everything. In the second century, there's an Athenian philosopher named Aristides who wrote a letter to a Roman emperor about what he was seeing in the early Christian community. And they're trying to kill the whole thing. And he was kind of a spy, but here's what he wrote about it. He said that they worship no other gods these early Christians, they're not worshiping other gods. They're uncompromising. They have his commands imprinted on their hearts. They observe them because they live in the hope and expectation of the coming age of this world. They don't commit adultery. They don't live in fornication. They speak no untruth. They don't keep, themselves, uh, they, they don't keep for themselves the goods entrusted to them. They do not covet what belongs to other people. They speak gently to those who oppress them. And in this way, they make them their friends. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. They're women, O emperor. They're pure like virgins. Their daughters are chaste, kind, and gentle. And guess what? It's also true of the men too. 
Their men refrain from all unlawful intimate relationships. They keep free from all impurity, for they live in the expectation of the recompense to come in the other world. They love one another. They don't neglect widows. Orphans they rescue from those who are cruel to them. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring him under their roof. And if they hear that one of them is imprisoned or oppressed by their opponents for the sake of Christ's name, all of them take care of all of his needs. If possible, they set him free. Sounds like they were involved in social justice. They strive for righteousness because they live in the expectation of seeing Christ in his radiance and receiving from him the fulfillment of the promises he made to them. Shortly after he wrote that letter, Aristides became a believer. He converted to Christianity and was, was one of the early leaders in the first century or the second century church at that time. Church, your uncompromising witness is everything. It's everything. I forgot about that. When you're working, when your job is to work in the church and around Christians all the time, you forget how important your testimony is. And you forget that your character and and how things play out in the real world, like that matters a whole lot because the majority of people around you are believers. I think most of our staff is. Um, just <laughs> this past week, Rad- Brian Radabaugh shared a, a story with our staff, um, reminding me of the power and, and, and beauty of our witness and our testimony. He was in the back of his house. He was back in his back alley, and one of his neighbors was walking down that alley and went to go find him, and he said, hey, uh, you're a priest, right? I always love that one. People think we're priests. Like, no, we don't have the collar and we're married. But anyway, um, he comes up and he's like, he's like, hey, you're a priest, right? And he's like, oh, kind of. I'm a pastor of the church, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, hey, um, I'm ready to have that conversation with you about Christianity. And Radabaugh's like, what? <laughs> like, that doesn't have, that's like the easiest evangelism in the world, right? You didn't even have to go out on a, on a limb. But he goes, I'm ready to have that conversation with you about Christianity that you talked about years ago. And he's like, yeah, let's, let's go. Let's do it. Like, he's like, and he asked the question. He goes, what prompted this conversation? And he goes, I got a group of employees at my office that are believers. And I'm, in may, I'm amazed at the way that they live their life. He's like, they stand out like no one else does in my office. And I just can't ignore it any longer. I've got to find out about your God. And he goes, I want to be really, really clear. I'm not asking about your church. I want to know about your God. Church, that's what's at stake. A faithful and uncompromising life is a threat to the enemy because it bears witness to a faithful God who is more satisfying than anything the world can provide. Church, do you know where you are most vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy? Do you know where you are most vulnerable? Do you know where you are susceptible to give in to temptation. We talked about it again on staff this past week. I know that Sunday afternoons are really tough for me. I'm coming down from the mountain Sunday afternoon and like I can hear Satan's voice in my head. I can hear the enemy's voice trying to pump me up way too much or trying to bring me down way too much. And Kat will tell you like I'm really weird on Sunday afternoons. I'm just, I'm just weird on Sunday afternoons. Like, do you know where you are susceptible to the temptation from the enemy? Because I promise you, like, church, when you know the enemy's plan and you know how he plans to go after you, it's a whole lot easier to win the war. And the beauty of the story is just he's just not that creative. He's been doing the same thing from the garden. Like, back in the garden, he came with fruit, and here he's coming with bread, just good things. 
and he's dangling in front of you just saying, hey, just make a little too much of this really good thing that you're going to have in your life all the time. Back in the garden, he comes and he tries to twist God's word. Did God really say these things over here? And here he tries to put a question mark where God has put a period. He's doing the exact same thing to us today. Back in the garden, he used the knowledge of good and evil to get him to compromise. And he's still promising church all the kingdoms of the world. If you'll just simply compromise, go after this really good thing in the wrong way. You can have everything that your heart's ever desired. It's the same thing over and over and over again. It's just idolatry, identity, and compromise. Idolatry, identity, and compromise. Idolatry, identity, and compromise. But the beauty of the story is that Jesus was ready for the whole thing. So he comes back with four simple little words that you and I can always use. Away from me, Satan. Never forget that. Away from me, Satan. Simple. Away from me, Satan. And if you want to add three more, it is written. That's it. 